Hello, and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century, and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 33, Three Williams. First of all, it is great to be back behind the microphone again after my trip. Big shout out to all those people that said hello on Instagram and so forth while I was away. Uh, This is actually a little bit later than I expected, mainly because the joys of international air travel are yet to be ironed out properly at this point. Big shout out to Haneda Airport in Japan where I got to spend a day (laughs) just waiting for a plane. Wasn't even meant to be there. That's the nature of the beast, I guess, these days. But nevertheless, I'm back. I've got an episode and I didn't even realise it until just now that while it is episode 33, I did call this Three Williams. Weird. Alrighty. Well, first of all, getting into it. On Friday, the 24th of August, 1759, William Wilberforce was born. So we already know one thing about him. He was a Virgo. But he was also the only son of Robert and Elizabeth. And while he was in the merchant class of society, the family were wealthy, largely thanks to the family fortune made by Robert's father in the Baltic maritime trade and also sugar importation from the West Indies. He later went to Hull Grammar School, which introduced him to the headmaster there, Joseph Milner, a man that would become his lifelong friend. Sadly though, his father died in 1768, and financially this was a terrible time for his family. William was sent to live with his aunt and uncle in London, and also stayed at their home in Wimbledon. They were rich enough to afford to pay for his continued education, and it was through his aunt Hannah that he met her brother, John Thornton. John is outside our general century of interest, as he died in 1790, but he was incredibly rich thanks to some smart investments. He gave most of it away, though, and is regarded as the greatest philanthropist of the 1700s. He was also a devoted evangelical Christian, and it was his faith that influenced William, much to the despair of his Church of England parents. This, combined with the Methodist leanings of his headmaster at Hull Grammar, meant that his parents preferred to send him to Pocklington School. This was still in the same area though, and despite his value system being largely conservative Christian, he soon embraced the party lifestyle of going to the theatre, attending balls and, shock horror, playing cards. Uh, This last one is something that we don't even really think of these days, but keep in mind that games of chance were seen by many as a sin. How so, I hear you ask? Well, some of you will know of the Ten Commandments, one of which is we must not covet. Officially, it's number 10 on the list and states, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's house, nor his farm, nor his cattle, nor anything that is his. So, by this logic, making a bet is coveting the money of the person you're playing cards with, therefore, no bueno. So, this was bad enough. 
And then in 1776, when he went to St. John's College in Cambridge, his continued enjoyment of gambling and playing cards continued with late night drinking sessions, saw him basically become an 18th century animal house party boy. This was helped by the passing of his grandfather and the rich uncle he used to live with. So not only was he partying hard, he had the bank behind him to support his crazy 1700s lifestyle. Think of Ryan Reynolds' Van Wilder with an English accent and you're getting close. He was popular, funny, had lots of friends, including future Prime Minister William Pitt. That was William Pitt the Younger. And I'm desperately and failing to avoid calling our William, William the Other. It's a total dad joke. I am a dad, so indulge me in my terrible humour. William the Other also passed all of his exams and got his Bachelor of Arts in 1781 and his Masters in 1788. So, party animal, but smart, and also connected. Nice work, William. And it was with his friendship with William Pitt that helped focus his future. William thought that William would be great in politics, and at the age of 21, while still at university, he was elected as a member of parliament for the electorate of Kingston upon Hull. As I mentioned before, he had some serious money thanks to inheritance, and with a seat in government costing him about £8,000 to get the votes he needed to win. That's nearing £2 million today, so like I said, he had some real money to play with. But before you get all uppity on having bought his place, I'd ask you this, is it really that different from what happens in politics today? In his defence, I will say that as a man that was independently wealthy, he was not beholden to either side of Parliament. Sometimes he would vote with the Conservative Tories, and at other times with the more socially progressive Whigs, his decisions being based on his conscience and the merit of what was being proposed rather than a party-driven agenda. He also continued his party lifestyle and became a fixture on the social scene in London and was a regular at the gentlemen's gambling clubs. There is something that does now need mentioning at this point. William was an excellent speaker. Now, I know you can't see it, and I hope I've given this the right emphasis, given that my notes I wrote it in caps, but William was as eloquent as he was intelligent. He was described as the wittiest man in England, and known to have had an excellent singing voice. So much so that reportedly the Prince of Wales slash future Edward VII would go anywhere to listen to him sing. His vocal abilities meant that he was an eloquent speaker in Parliament. James Boswell was an author who is described as having written the best biography in the English language, which was about his friend and fellow writer Samuel Johnson, and so is a man who clearly knew his words. James Boswell described Wilberforce's speaking abilities as such, quote, I saw what seemed a mere shrimp mount upon the table, but as I listened, he grew and grew until the shrimp became a whale. End quote. 
1783, he toured the continent with William Pitt the Younger, and while at one stage they were thought of as being English spies, they did go on to Paris and meet Benjamin Franklin, General Lafayette, Maria Antoinette, and Louis XVI. Though, just the usual stuff that you or I might do also when gallivanting about Europe. Later that year, Pitt was made Prime Minister, with Wilberforce being a key supporter, despite being an independent. He won his parliamentary seat again in 1784, and he then took another tour around Europe with his mother, sister, and younger brother of his former headmaster, a man by the name of Isaac Milner. During his trip, he spent most of his time going to dinners and still playing cards and gambling. It was during this trip that he read a book called The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. Written by Philip Doddridge, this much-lauded work was written to inspire Christians to further their spiritual growth. And the work seems to have been of particular meaning to Wilberforce, bringing back his childhood Christian evangelism that he had enjoyed living with his aunt and uncle. He started reading the Bible every morning, and while he gave up his partying, by all reports, he remained cheerful and respectful of people. This sort of born-again religious experience that Wilberforce underwent was seen socially as being somewhat suspicious. More in the socially transgressive way rather than what he was actually trying to hide by suddenly acting all religious. William even thought of leaving Parliament, but was convinced to stay by Pitt the Younger and others. The latter half of the 18th century saw Wilberforce advocating for political reform as well as other socially progressive reforms. The 1780s also saw the real beginnings of the abolitionist movement, that is, advocating for the removal of slavery and the slave trade within the kingdom. Prominent social figures of the time, returning from journeys to the West Indies and the plantations there, had seen the horrific ways that slaves were treated, both in their workplaces as well as on the ships moving them about the world. They were also highly critical of the decadent lifestyles of the plantation owners, as well as the lack of Christian instruction being provided to the slaves themselves. Because when you're working in horrific conditions for someone that treats you the same as property, what you're looking for is someone to give you their religion. I digress. But just so you know, the slave-grown products around the empire represented something like 80% of the kingdom's foreign income. British ships in the late 1700s dominated the slave trade and carried up to 40,000 men, women and children a year. Think of that. 40,000. Think of maybe a concert you've been to or a large sports event. Imagine looking around and seeing all of those people and that all of them are being forced into slavery and shipped each year. It's just horrifying. Fortunately, William Wilberforce already knew many of the people involved in the UK's abolition movement And this combined with his personal life changes meant that he found himself in the position of agreeing with their cause. It was in 1787 at the estate of William Pitt the Younger that he changed the way of his life forever. The story goes that Wilberforce was relaxing under an oak tree on the property with Pitt the Younger 
as well as future Prime Minister William Grenville when Pitt challenged him to make a parliamentary motion on the slave trade. Pitt was arguing that Wilberforce already had the information to promote his stance and should do so before someone else tried to steal the high ground of promoting abolition. Motivated by his Christian values, Wilberforce saw this as a cause that God had set to him. Over the next few years, Wilberforce sought to abolish the slave trade. The stress of the task took its toll and he started suffering from ulcers in his digestive tract, an issue that would plague him for the rest of his life. Doctors at the time prescribed opium for relief, and that is a product that he unfortunately would continue to use for the rest of his life as well. But William did keep fighting. He didn't always win, and he had his detractors. Like any Parliament bill, he had to make compromises. For example, rather than freeing the slaves currently in slavery, he had to make the decision at one point to fight for the freedom of the children of the slaves rather than the slaves themselves. Concessions, little wins, and slowly changing public perception. All of it was horrible, but William and the others were trying, regardless of the criticisms aimed towards them. During this time, Thomas Clarkson, a graduate of St. John's Cambridge, just like Wilberforce, had written a prize-winning essay on the subject. He took a copy of his work to Wilberforce, and it was the beginning of a friendship that lasted over four decades. And he was also helped by the French abolition of slavery in 1794, thanks to the slave revolt in Saint-Domingue. This would later be known as Haiti, and, at the point of trivia, it's the only successful slave revolt in history. Other supporters helped where they could. Prominent abolitionist Henry Thornton and his friends in the Clapham area of London all aided in the work. Henry was William's best friend as well as his cousin, and his group of friends were all devout but practical Christians wanting to end the slave trade. Because of their religious background, they became known as the Clapham sect, or as they were also known, the Saints. Way more cooler in my opinion. And on April 2nd, 1792, William Wilberforce brought forward a bill to gradually abolish the slave trade over the next few years. It passed 230 to 85. Total win. And then they got into a war with France. Again. This war lasted until 1805. During this time, William continued to try and have anti-slavery bills brought through Parliament, with some success and some defeats, but always keeping the argument in the public consciousness. In 1804, William's bill to abolish the slave trade passed through the House of Commons. This was the lower house in the English parliamentary system, but thanks to the timing, it didn't get to the upper house, also known as the House of Lords, until 1805, where it was again defeated. It was during this vote, even the support of longtime friend William Pitt the Younger went missing, causing a rift in their friendship for a time. But with Pitt the Younger dying in 1806, Wilberforce began working with more Whigs, today what we might call a left-wing party. And the times, as they say, were a-changing. William Grenville became Prime Minister upon Pitt's death. If you might recall, Grenville, 
because I'll be damned if I keep using William for everyone in this podcast, was the third man under that auspicious oak tree I mentioned before. So, William Grenville, aka First Baron Grenville, was clearly in support of the abolition movement and brought more men into positions of power that held similar interests. And lawyers being lawyers, well, one of their ilk was playing games. Very smart games. A maritime lawyer by the name of James Stephen created a workaround solution, which I have to say is pretty smart. He created a parliamentary bill that forbid British subjects from being involved in the slave trade to the French colonies. Now, this might seem oddly specific, but it really was a brilliant move. Because most of the British ships flew under an American flag, not the Union Jack. And they were also dealing with French colonies, which, being French, were technically at war with Britain at the time. So this bill gets introduced into Parliament, and you can imagine how hard it must have been for Wilberforce and others to bite their tongues and remain silent as it was discussed. Because they did keep quiet. They just let the others there debate and carry on and pontificate, all the while knowing what this bill actually meant and the effect it would have. Can you imagine what that would have been like? You've got this bill into Parliament, and thanks to some tricky-sounding wording, it doesn't really seem to be what it is. Removing Britain from the slave trade. Something that you've been trying to get through for so many years, because you know just how morally wrong this revolting business is. And you're there in your hard seat in the parliament and you're watching it being debated and you're seeing others discussing it and so wanting to contribute. But knowing the best thing you can do right now is keep your mouth shut and wait for it. Wait for it. Wait. The bill passes, receiving royal assent on the 23rd of May, 1806. This incredible win really created a steamroller effect for the cause. The men fighting for this cause, men such as Wilberforce and his friend Thomas Clarkson, his old bestie and alumni from the same school, they had collated decades of data and information showing just how bad the slave trade was. And they took advantage of this new public awareness of this horrible trade and they kept pushing. And it became an election issue there were more men in Parliament now that were pro-abolitionists, men that had served in the military in the Caribbean and had seen the horrific treatment of their fellow men and women, and having the Prime Minister, Lord Grenville, also supporting the cause was a real change in the wind. Reading the room, Lord Grenville ran the bill through the upper house first, gambling on having the House of Lords approve it, which was the more difficult task, but this time it passed by a large margin. And at this time, one of the lords of said House of Lords made his move. Charles Grey, also known as Second Earl Grey, was a long-time reformer of social ills, and trust me, he has a podcast coming. Also, enjoy the tea named after him. I know Jean-Luc Picard certainly does. Tea Earl Grey, hot. But one day, he'll be Prime Minister one of Britain's finest actually, but for the moment he aided in driving the bill through the House of Commons. I get goosebumps thinking about this. 
Earl Grey, who had the bill brought forward and sensing the room, those in the House of Commons took turns standing up and giving their support to it. All those years, those decades of fighting for what you knew was right, what you knew should not be happening, fighting against the horrific treatment of people you knew deserved better and could do better if given the chance to do so. Tributes were made to William Wilberforce by the men in what at that time was the greatest democratic parliament in the world. Reportedly, his face was streaming with tears at the words of his peers. The bill passed the House of Commons, 283 to 16. This wasn't the complete removal of slavery in the kingdom, but it was the incredibly critical first step. No British citizen could be involved in the trade, and just as importantly, public perception of the entire slave trade had changed to see it as no longer being socially acceptable. It wouldn't be until years later, in 1823, that the Anti-Slavery Society was formed. Part of this slow pace was that in the United Kingdom, slavery happened largely on the other side of the world. It was mainly used in the Caribbean with the plantation owners and the sugarcane farms. It was because of this aspect that in England, William Wilberforce received criticism for his cause. Because it was kind of out of sight, out of mind, many people complained that Wilberforce did not care about the conditions of the poor in England and seemed more concerned with the welfare of people he had little dealings with. He opposed unions, calling them a general disease on society, and had previously voted for bills which banned meetings of more than 50 people. In 1819, he opposed an inquiry into what would become known as the Peterloo Massacre, where 11 people were killed while protesting political reform. He was also conservative in his views of women, believing that they shouldn't be involved in social protests, even against abolition, because he saw it as being against scripture. But he, along with others, also created the world's first animal welfare body, a society that would later become known as the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the RSPCA. But getting back to his abolition work, the Anti-Slavery Act was finally passed unopposed on the 22nd of July, 1833. And one week later, at the age of 73, William Wilberforce died of complications from influenza. He left behind his now widow, Barbara. William had been in his late 30s when he had met her, a young woman of only 20, and he proposed only eight days after meeting her. All reports indicate that they adored each other throughout their marriage. They had six children in the space of ten years, and William was described as a doting and affectionate father. 
Interestingly, a couple of his sons converted to Catholicism, but one, Samuel, became the Dean of Westminster and was famous for debating with Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution. I do find it interesting how, like so many people of history that get painted with a broad-stroked brush, the complexities that come with being such a person get missed. William was known to be incredibly generous with his own income and donated thousands of pounds to pay others' debts, support education and cover the costs of starving people. He felt guilty when he had to sack servants and ultimately ended up with a house full of old, barely functional servants. He disagreed with the practice of hanging criminals, believing that smaller crimes being addressed would prevent larger crimes being committed. He hated profanity and immorality as much as he hated slavery, and this too was a lifelong cause in struggling to remove blasphemy, excessive swearing and drinking, and other immoral practices from society. William fought for the rights of people thousands of miles away because he knew slavery was wrong. And yet he thought women should act in a certain way because of the Bible. And then he goes and makes a society that exists to this day that seeks to protect animals from harm. Wilberforce had requested to be buried at St Mary's Church in Stoke Newington, north of London, but Parliament had other ideas and so, once his family had agreed, he was given a burial at Westminster Abbey, where he was laid to rest nearby his lifelong friend, William Pitt the Younger. Parliament was suspended on the day as a mark of respect for his life of service. And just a little bit more trivia, because you know I love it. The oak tree, which the three Williams sat under and decided to abolish slavery... It became known as the Wilberforce Oak. Over time it did die though and became a hollow shell by 1987. That hollow shell had been protecting an acorn that had been planted, an acorn from the original tree that was growing strongly and unfortunately blew down in the storms of 87. Yet the line lives on because an acorn was again planted, this time from the newly fallen tree. So the third generation lives on. That, along with a stone seat nearby, reminds us all of what William Wilberforce and others strived to achieve and keep people free. And on that note, here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. If you could follow me on Twitter, that'd be great at Vic Gaslamp and more importantly on Instagram where I post history facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes and I'm Victorian Gaslamp there as well. The next episode will be out in two weeks so keep a look out for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.